We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome back to The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. We're here at the People's Summit for Democracy in Los Angeles. We're talking with Stephanie Weatherby. She's an organizer with the International People's Assembly. Welcome. Hi, Brian. While we're here, we're in Los Angeles. There are two summits. There's the Summit of the Americas, which only includes parts of the Americas. And then we have a People's Summit, an alternative summit, you're with the International People's Assembly. There's a lot of organizations, grassroots organizations, community groups, unions, peace organizations, women's organizations, student groups. Here, some of them, I'd say many of them actually are affiliated with the International People's Assembly. So let's get started. What is it? So the International People's Assembly is a global network of movements, of people's organizations, of parties as well, unions, all kinds of different organizations, whether it's peasant, movements that are focused on environmental justice, etc., that have come together over the past five years to try to build a global movement against imperialism, against capitalism, against patriarchy and racism. And so our goal is to organize global days of action based on the understanding that only a global movement is going to be able to confront the root of the injustices that are experienced in communities across the world. So even if an issue seems like it's very different from one place to another, the root cause is still fundamentally the same one. And sometimes it's even the same enemies that we're facing. So you could see it very clearly, like some of the same investment firms that are buying up homes in Los Angeles and that are leading to the homelessness crisis by taking units off the market and devoting them to speculation, those are the same financial firms that are investing and putting money into the destruction and devastation of the Amazon. And so even though these two can seem on the surface as being very disconnected issues, they're actually not. It's a lot, of, it's first of all the same system that we're confronting, but it's also the same global actors that are perpetuating these injustices. And so based on that understanding, the International People's Assembly is trying to build a cross-sectoral movement that is able to confront these, these roots of the injustices that we're seeing around the world. And frankly, we've been able to grow a lot because more and more movements around the world are noticing that reality, that it's not possible to win things without confronting the larger global issue. It's becoming harder and harder for movements, especially political projects that are being built at a national level, to push their agenda without having some kind of a global connectedness uh, way of being able to organize solidarity. And so that's what the IPA is. Yeah, I w it's very impressive here because there are people literally from all over the Americas here at the People's Summit for yeah. the Democracy. I was present at a gathering, a smaller gathering, of people who basically came from outside the United States, mainly from Latin America, Central America, Caribbean. You gave a talk there, sort of an orientational talk, on behalf of the IPA. And the, the thing that you mentioned is that all of the, the problems, the issues, the manifestations of oppression of very types could be traced back to the system. And you name the system. You name the system as capitalism. Yeah. You know, it's kind of interesting that 
the movement, the international movement against capitalism as an international phenomena has gone on for a long time. Yeah. There was the first international started by Karl Marx in the 1860s. There was a second international where parties had formed, mainly in Europe, the socialist parties. Then after the Russian Revolution, there was a third international and socialism sort of moved to the east and moved to the south and it became the global south, what we call now the global south that became sort of the receptors of the vessels for this movement. But this kind of yearning for social change, for social justice or anti-capitalism, it's got these very long roots and even and every time it appears to be sort of snuffed out, which isn't once or twice, it's, there's been many historic setbacks and defeats, it comes back. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I didn't personally live through this. I mean, I think that I'm part of a generation that lived through or became politicized after the fall of the Soviet Union and after there was this sense that there was no alternative to capitalism, the so-called end of history. As I told you at some point, I became politicized around the anti-war movement when I moved to the United States from Mexico and I went to my first mass mobilization was against the war in Iraq. And so I think that there was always this thirst for change and this kind of indignation at things that were happening in our midst. You know, the war in Iraq is something that even someone as young as I was at the time understood very clearly was something that was unfair. I was also part of the immigrant rights movement later on, the big sort of ascent of immigrant rights mobilization. But a lot of us that became politicized when I was politicized were not as, we didn't have this vision of what was an alternative to capitalism because there was a huge attack on all socialist ideas and what we were taught in university and in some case within the very movements that we became active in was that the best you could do was reform capitalism, that there was no other alternative to it, but also this idea that capitalism could be perfected, that there was a kinder form of capitalism that we could build and that that kind of capitalism could be inclusive. And what has become clear, I think, in the past 10 years is that that's completely false. I mean, for one, the conditions of workers have only gotten worse. And it's become very clear to us that capitalism as a system is incapable of employing at least 30% of the population, right? Like, even in the best case scenario, when you look at capitalism at a global level, it continues to exclude people from the labor market. And I think that something that is very important to highlight in that case is the United States, which is supposed to be a model and an example for the most advanced form of capitalism, even in the United States, millions of people are excluded. Millions of people are excluded from good and decent employment, which leads to a host of other social issues. And so I think that that's one thing that has brought us back to the realization that actually capitalism isn't the only way to organize society because it's not working. And I think that the other big thing is the growing awareness that this generation has about environmental change. I recently heard a talk from John Bellamy Foster where he said, I mean, green capitalism is a complete oxymoron. There's no way because the logic of capitalism is to reap profit. And that goes counter to preservation. Capitalism is never going to put the preservation of the planet and resources or, or the natural environment over its need to produce profit because capitalism can't exist without producing profit. Like there's no way, it's not that they're greedy. It's that the only way that the system can continue to exist, that it, what it feeds on is actually the devastation of our environment. And so I think that our growing awareness about those two things, right? 
capitalism is excluding more and more people. Poverty is growing because of capitalism, not because capitalism hasn't been perfected. It seems that by design, as capitalism gets more developed, it creates more poverty and it destroys the environment in more and more violent ways. And I think that that's leading more and more people to take socialism seriously and to think about it as a viable alternative to the system that we are experiencing. I want to talk to you about a couple different phases or stages of socialism or anti-capitalism because obviously we've gone through, as we mentioned before, different iterations. And at the time that Marx formed the first international, the, what was called the International Working Men's Association, it wasn't a meeting of, of Marxists. No. Marx was... Yeah. The Marxists were a small minority. Yeah, a lot of trade unionists. <laughs> a lot of trade unionists. There were Christian socialists. Right. There were anarchists. The Marxists were a minority, but Marx played a very central role because yeah. he was a master strategist and tactician and leader. And while he wrote Capital and wrote the Communist Manifesto, he also was a facilitator yeah. of the needs of a movement at a particular time. And that movement was it wasn't all following a particular party line, which is what actually did happen, say, after the Russian Revolution, when yeah. all of the parties who formed the Third International, the Communist International, they adhered to a unified program. They said, this program applies to all countries everywhere, and it's the program for proletarian revolution. Well, now the Soviet Union collapsed, the socialist camp collapsed. As you said, the capitalists and their apologists said, this is the end of history. We've reached the crowning achievement of humanity, the rule of billionaires. And so you don't have to worry about the future because this is it. Yeah. And yet here we are 30 years later, socialism is reviving. But again, it's not reviving in the sense that all of the different currents and trends are thinking exactly the same right. way. They don't have a, necessarily a unified program. Even on the Ukraine issue, yeah. you could have all kinds of different positions about Russia's, what Russia calls its special military operation or what the media calls the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So let's talk about the basis of unity under these circumstances where in a way the socialist movement is starting over. Yeah. So like, how does the IPA deal with that issue? Building solidarity, but not necessarily about an identity of views on all questions. Yeah, so as a way of getting to your question, which I think is a really important question, I also want to come back to what you were raising about how the first international was formed, because I think it's a great history and most of us don't learn that Marx was actually a very talented organizer. And one of the primary goals that Marx had when he started participating in the first international, he was very clear when he saw the grouping that came together. He was like, we have to keep these people in the same room mm -hmm. because left to their own devices, like without us playing some kind of a role, they're going to pull apart because they're not speaking the same language. Like you said, they're not guided by the same dogma or by the same ideas. And so our first goal is to keep this group together. And I think that that was brilliant. And I think that he was largely successful. The fact that the First International had to fall apart eventually doesn't mean that he wasn't successful. It had fulfilled its purpose in mm -hmm. history and then led to other things. And so I think that in a similar way, the IPA has to take that as a very serious lesson. Like we're in a moment where we are experiencing like a rebirth in some regions of the world and we have to keep everybody together. We have to find the means to build unity over time. I think that that's one of the most important things. Revolution and socialism is gonna be built over decades and generations. So it's very important for us to be patient and it's very important for us to do the kinds of things that are necessary to keep people in the room. 
and to build unity over a long period of time. And one thing that I think that we have to learn from the history of the communist movement is that we build unity by doing work together. Mm. We're not going to build unity if we say, oh, let's bring everybody into a conference and everybody put out your main theses on what it's going to take to build revolution and let's see if we can agree, because that's never going to work. You're just going to build several camps that some agree with one thesis and some agree with another. And we are strongly against that approach, first mm. of all. I think that we have to build work together. We have to do events such as the People Summit, like the one we're doing here together. We have to bring organizations in to work with us, to run political education activities, to come out and do mobilizations with us, to do brigades and missions, and to organize cultural festivals. Because in that process, it's not that like one group's going to convince all the others, but we're going to build a collective synthesis that incorporates what every, where everyone's coming from. Because I think that one thing that has become really clear also over this like long century of communism is that there's not going to be one way to get to communism and there's not going to be one way to build a revolution, right? Like the world is very different from one place to another. That's one of the major lessons I've learned being an organizer of the International People's Assembly, that the approaches to doing political work and the demands of the people in a place like Argentina are not the same as the demands of working people in a place like Ghana. They're in different, you know, it's just a different reality. Even if they were both former colonies of an empire, they were not colonies at the same time. They were not colonies of the same empire. They went through a different social formation. And the way that class society was formed in these places was not the same. I mean, a great example is India. India has a caste system, which is even, yes, it is a class society, much like the class society that exists in a place like Puerto Rico. But it's not the same thing. It's connected to other you know, historical factors. And so I think one of the greatest lessons that we can learn and that we have to apply today is that socialism is going to be built in different ways. And we're not going to have one path towards socialism. This idea that there are stages towards the revolution and that we have to go through these very specific stages, I think is not, is not useful for us. And so the IPA is committed to respecting that every region, every country, every struggle is going to have its own path. What we have to do is retain unity throughout that, that process. One of the things that I think is important is a lot of people as socialism are, is reviving in, in its interest and the, the interest in Marxism is growing as well, at least certainly in the United States among young people. A lot of people are getting their information, their perspective from the internet. So yeah. they go on Twitter and there's Twitter battles or Facebook battles or this battle or that battle and it's all very sort of arcane and sort of academic or certainly not connected to the struggles of people in communities and there can be in a way a very warped sense of what Marxism is and that's why I think it's important what you're saying that when you understand Marxism as a vehicle for social change yeah. you have to put it into a historical context you can't read Marx or Engels or Lenin the way somebody who's a Christian might read the New Testament where right. this is the final word no. because Marx and Engels and Lenin and Fidel and any revolutionary yeah. or anyone seeking radical change, they're writing at a particular moment, they're fighting particular fights, their polemics are designed to sort of move the movement forward where they are at a particular moment. So you have to contextualize and put all of these yeah. these elements into into a historical perspective. And then going back, if you even think about Karl Marx, and this is a, something that I, I'm really discovering when I talk to younger folks who are learning about Marxism, 
is they think Marxism is sort of a, Marx wrote this and thus that is the final truth. But if you read the Communist Manifesto, Marx says, Marxists and communists disdain to conceal their aims because they're on the verge of a revolution, the 1848 revolution. And then you read Marx at the beginning of the first international, in the first inaugural address, it's like, how do we bring the Christian socialists and the socialists who are in Italy and the nationalists who are in Italy and the trade unionists in Great Britain, how do we come together against a boss's offensive that was doing strike breaking? So the language is very different. And Marx indeed actually concealed his aims because at that moment, in order to unite that mass of people who needed to be united, the way the presentation was carried out was far different than it had been even 18 years earlier. My point is, all of real Marxism is contextualized and is connected to the reality of the movement at a moment. And yeah. it seems to me that the IPA is trying to build within that spirit and at the same time not conceal the fact that it's an anti-capitalist formation. Yeah. No, I think that it's really important for us to be very clear and to be bold about what it is that we're fighting for because I think that that's been one of the mistakes or one of the challenges of previous efforts to build a global network for change is that I think it's very important for us to name what it is that we're trying to change and to also vocalize what we're trying to move towards because I think it's very hard for people to devote their life to change if they don't know what it is that we're trying to build. Mm -hmm. And I think that we have to be very clear that what we're trying to build is socialism. Socialism shouldn't be seen as a bad word. You know, I'm, again, I'm from a generation that was very much taught that socialism and communism and Marxism were not change, that they were experiments that had been tried in history, that were irrelevant to our generation, that they were outdated, that they didn't reflect the reality that we were currently experiencing, and that they were ideas that had been defeated by better ideas. That's what I learned in college, and so I came into activism being kind of anti-Marxist myself because what I was taught is that preaching Marxism is trying to look back into history rather than look into the future. And so I think that at this time, however, what we've learned is that you can't keep people mobilized if you're not articulating what it is that we're fighting for. It's not enough to say that we're against evictions. We have to say that we're for public housing, right? We're not just for affordable housing, but we're for housing as a human right, for example, right? It's not enough for you to be able to just barely afford your rent. Or we're not for a job that is barely able to make you to survive, but we're for the idea that everybody has a right to have access to having all their basic needs met, having access to food, to education, to health care, right? To housing, to culture, which is also a basic need, to access to art, etc. And that is socialism. Yeah, we have to name that, that that is what we're talking about. We shouldn't be vague in mince words because I think that one thing that has led to losing the people in the struggle is when we're not upfront with them about what it's going to take to change their reality. Yeah. I want to go back to one other important issue that you mentioned, and maybe it's an overarching issue, which is the question of the environment, the issue of climate catastrophe you made the point that you really can't solve the problem of global warming or climate catastrophe within the framework of capitalism. And this is another element of the, at least from my point of view and what we do on our show, is that we're presenting it in a very upfront way. We, as a people, as a species, are in a, we're in a special period, in, in an emergency period. And we don't have that much longer in order to make radical transformations in how energy is used, where it comes from, how it's distributed. 
And none of that will happen under capitalism. So it seems to me that socialism, which is kind of starting over again, as we mentioned, also has this imperative need to do something right away on an emergency basis that capitalism can't do. And it, it seems to me that this becomes a great motivator for the renewal of socialism and the embrace of socialism, as long as people understand, or we can help them understand, why socialism is in fact the solution to environmental crisis. Yeah. I think that the environmental crisis is the most clear example of capitalism's inability to solve the problems that it creates. And I think that we have to name the, the situation for what it is. It's a capitalist-caused environmental crisis. And I don't like to use the word global warming or climate catastrophe because I think that that limits us to seeing only one side of the environmental crisis okay. and not the many facets of it. Because one part of the environmental crisis, which is maybe not as related to climate change, is the fact that more and more people in the world have no access to water. That's not a climate-related issue, but it's a huge crisis. The commodification of the resources of the planet is leading to the exclusion of a lot of people from the basic needs that they need for survival. And so capitalism very clearly, as much as it is trying to, and Biden very specifically has tried to brand himself as the poster child for green capitalism, this idea that there's a way to reform capitalism so that it is more sustainable and environmentally friendly is completely false. There's no way that capitalism can do that because, like I said, the way that capitalism survives is by creating profit. And they can't produce the same amount of profit this year that they produced last year. They need to produce more. And mm -hmm. that means producing more goods. And that means using more resources to produce those goods. That's why things like, you know, all of the consumer-based environmental policies like us doing more recycling and us being more water conscious like that's all great but the real problem is not because there's too many cars on the road the real problem is that the earth is being carved out they're taking out minerals and they're taking all kinds of resources from the planet and in the process polluting it to a level that is unsustainable and that's what capitalism is going to continue doing they might do it in places where we don't see it that's part of what the strategy is, too, is to sort of hide from the view of maybe people in the United States and Europe the kind of environmental destruction that capitalism is doing across the world and trying to present itself in a cleaner way. But the fact of the matter is capitalism will not stop sucking out resources. That's what it needs to continue to survive. And so that's why it is in direct contradiction with the survival of the human species on the planet. If the situation continues as it is now, if we continue to consume at the level that capitalism needs us to consume for capitalism to renew itself, then we're going to destroy the planet and we're going to make it increasingly an unlivable and inhospitable place for most of the people of the world, but specifically for poor people, people of color, and people in the periphery of capitalism, people in Latin America and Africa and Asia, in the Caribbean, etc. If a capitalist CEO reads a book Maybe he reads, say, John Bellamy Foster's book, and he realizes, wow, he's right, that it's a utopian notion that capitalism will actually be able to lead us out of this crisis. If he's the CEO of the company and he actually does things that might minimize or take away from the maximizing of profit for his corporation because he wants to do the right thing or she wants to do the right thing, 
they're going to be gone. They won't survive the next quarter because that CEO, exactly. their job is to maximize profit exactly. for that quarter, not even for the year. Yeah. It's that quarter. That's the real problem is it's not what's in their brains. It's actually the institution of an expansionist system based on exploitation and profit because investors don't invest in something in order to do anything other than to make money. And most of the investment is from very, very big capitalists. And I think they understand that, to be very honest. I think that the top CEOs and, and the people who are in these very important economic spaces determining economic policy for the rest of the world, they know that it's you know the end of the line, that, that for them to survive as capitalists, they're going to have to destroy the earth, which is why they're building bunkers in New Zealand, because they know that we're facing a climate catastrophe of like unprecedented dimensions, something that is unimaginable. That's why they're exploring space colonization. I mean, it sounds like something out of a sci-fi novel, and it's hard for us to wrap our head around, but it's real. Like, this is not made up. Like, there are bunkers being built in New Zealand for billionaires to move into when the world becomes inhospitable. And that's should tell us something about the way that things are going. And so it really is the capitalists or us. Our generation is going to have to make that decision. Our generation is going to have to put their life on the line to fight for the survival and for future generations and to fight to destroy capitalists. Because if we don't, we're not going to be around. We were talking earlier about discussions with young people, including teenagers. And I've had similar discussions with teenagers, one of whom I live with. And they say, yeah, socialism is good, communism is good. Why? They're not, they're not investing in capitalist corporations. They have no, nothing. But they think, like, but you can't win because they hear the propaganda all the time against socialism and the propaganda against communism. And of course, as Marx said, the ideas of any society are the ideas of its ruling class until the moment of radical transformation when the ideas become very radical. And so it seems like the masses of people, including poor and working class people, are, are sort of reflecting back those same, oh, socialism can't win or socialism can't work. Or the other side of the argument is, yeah, maybe everybody would like it, but the state is so powerful, the capitalists are so powerful, the police, the military is so big. How can you possibly win? And in every society, you know, before radical change happens, people think it's impossible until it happens and then looking back people say oh it was inevitable it was going to change because it needed to change so badly but let's just talk about what the IPA's approach is towards overcoming this because I know you've talked a lot about the what you frame as the battle of ideas which is what we're talking about people who even think socialism might work but it's just not going to happen how yeah. can it happen what's that's a big part of this battle of ideas yeah I mean I have a couple of things to say and first of all I also live with a teenager so and I think that what capitalism is betting on right now, because they understand that what they're building is no longer popular. And they know that more and more people are opposed to what they're building or more disillusioned to the answers that capitalism has for people's problems. So capitalism's big bet right now is to exclude more and more people from the democratic process, either by suppressing the vote, but also by demobilizing people. And you see that very clear with the kind of propaganda wars that are directed especially at the youth. And so what capitalism is telling the youth is you can't really change things, but do you really need to? And diverting their attention from the issues that are very serious and that frankly are causing a lot of young people today anxiety and depression because they have a lot to figure out. Like nothing is given in their life. 
everything in their life is going to be a struggle. How to go to school, how to get a job, where they're going to live, how are they going to have a family when there's no health care, etc. And so capitalism is diverting their attention towards things like consumerism, getting them to buy and buy and buy and more things, entertaining them, keeping them constantly stimulated with new things to keep them sort of, you know, not thinking about the main issues that are happening in their lives and in their communities. And that's a way of demobilizing people and, and like taking them out of any kind of political engagement. And the other way, of course, is violence, right? You know, young people, especially young people of color, are being massacred across the world. Why? Because they're the most revolutionary class. Young people have the least to lose. They're the most angry, rightfully so, because they know that, you know, the odds are stacked against them, especially young people of color, young black people. Just, you know, they know that the system is not looking out for them. And so capitalism has all these strategies to politically disengage youth and to get them to disconnect. And another way, too, is to get us to feel comfortable in some way with the idea of apocalypse. I mean, it's noticeable how much Hollywood just is churning out yearly movies and TV shows that are about an apocalyptic future of many different varieties, right? From the craziest to the most believable. And I feel like that really fulfills an ideological end in some way because it gets us to sort of assimilate the idea uh, like a dystopia. And I think it does that with young people in particular. Like it desensitizes young people from things that they should be sensitive to, that should be upsetting to them. And that also contributes to demobilization of the youth, to getting them out of political process and not wanting to engage in change. And so from the perspective of the IPA, the way that we have to build that battle of ideas is we have to open as many doors as possible. We have to make it possible for people to get engaged politically through a variety of different fronts, whether it's through cultural work or art or through getting involved in a protest movement in their community or through school and the student movement. Like, we can't restrict people to, like, if you want to get political, the only way to do it is to go and march downtown every once a month or whenever there's a mobilization. We have to say to people, no, there's so many other ways to be politically engaged. Like you can plant an urban farm. You can get involved in an occupation of someone's home who is getting evicted. Like there's so many ways to get involved. Like you can become engaged by, you know, providing child care for mothers who are trying to become politically engaged themselves. Like we have to open up as many doors as possible and welcome people in. And so that means having a, a variety of different fronts of work and also being extremely open to where people are at when they come into political spaces. I think that that's something that's very important. People come in with all kinds of ideas in their head and our job as organizers is to listen to them, not to convince them, but to listen to them and see what we can learn from them, what we can also teach them, but to be in that dialogue with people permanently rather than going out and trying to like recruit, indoctrinate, come to a protest. like. We have to be smarter than that, and in the same way that capitalism is trying to get into the heads of young people through all different ways, we have to make it clear that we're there too to listen to them and to offer real discussions and solutions to the problems that they have, which is something that capitalism is definitely not willing to do. Yeah, one of the noteworthy elements of this People Summit for Democracy is some of the, the things that you were just talking about. Like over here, there's a group of artists and there's a group of people doing something here and people over here doing something else, like a whole variety yeah. of activities. And also, it's so important as like a radical, revolutionary, socialist, Marxist, activist organizer here in the United States, to, to be able to sit with people from Argentina or Mexico or Brazil 
learning so much about the different ways that people are actually organizing. And, and that's the other part of it is that I think is so important about the International People's Assembly and why I think it will take off and become a, a mass phenomenon, in fact, is that there's a great yearning for that. Yeah. And there's no way to really have those sort of spaces available where you can actually do that kind of connecting with people. The International People's Assembly is going out of its way to, as you said, to be patient, to take the time, to get people in the same room together. The, even the statements, the orientational material, it's not like declarative, here we stand and... You're either uh, with this, us or against us. Yeah, meaning taking like a, a very specific trend or tendency within the movement around which all people must either unite or divide. There's a, you know, people are really listening to each other. And I think having been part of the IPA experience, I think it's something very novel. And I think it's also something that I just can't believe people won't want this. I mean, yeah. unions, community groups, it doesn't have to be already existing socialist organizations who could nope. find sisters and brothers and comrades within the IPA. Yeah. No, and I think that this event that we're having here is definitely proof of what you're saying. And I think that there's so much enthusiasm and participation has been growing every day, and that's very exciting. But one of the things that's very exciting, too, about the growing participation in the People Summit here that I think is very gives us a lot of hope is that the global left has always been in this kind of you know, dilemma about whether the U.S. working class can be anti-imperialist. And it many times has become very pessimistic about that possibility, has become convinced that the U.S. working class is loyal to empire because it's been bought in and there's no way to move them. And even though they're in a strategic position to be able to deal blows at empire, that we're just never going to organize them. And I think that the event that we're holding today makes it very clear that that's not true, that the U.S. working class is suffering under the same conditions that empire is causing across the world and is ready to get involved in that global struggle against empire that they do not feel represented by empire and by the government of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, that they are not naturally inclined to you know, feel like they are enemies of Cuba. And so I think that that's incredibly important. The U.S. and the state of capitalism has gone into such level of crisis that it can't provide even U.S. citizens the kind of conditions and you know, sort of bribes, if you will, to keep them separate from the working class of the rest of the world. And we're seeing the fruits of that here because more and more people are excluded from the sort of so-called prosperity of capitalism, even here in empire. Yeah, I think especially for people who aren't from the United States, they might not really know the truth that this is a multinational working class. You know, it's black and Latino and Asian American, indigenous, Arab American, people from all walks of life, from the Caribbean, from South Asia, from the Middle East. It's a very oppressed working class. I mean, according to the Poor People's yeah. Campaign, 140 million people, almost half, are either in or near poverty, meaning the ones who aren't in poverty are like a $500 emergency away from being in poverty. And there's no expansive social program. So as we heard from some of the folks who were talking earlier today, you know, if you get hit by a car, if you get sick, if you don't have adequate health care, it could be a life-changing event, even if you survive it. I mean, economically and financially, and really affect millions of families. So in a way, when you look at who's here at the People's Summit for Democracy, it doesn't look like there's the United States here and the global south over there. 
a big part of the United States is the global south. Absolutely. And it's always been the case, but even more so now. And it shows the promise, really, of building multinational unity, multinational efforts together. And again, if it's just rhetoric, if it's just language, if it's just formal statements, it won't go very far. But I feel, and you can feel from the other people in the room, there's a real yearning to do things together. So let's just talk, I want to ask you this, and then one follow-up question. In terms of the IPA's progress or progression or strategic thinking for the next year or so, I mean, we're coming out of COVID, we're possibly facing a global recession, there's the war in Ukraine. Anyway, what's the big plan for IPA? What are the most important things for IPA organizers to be thinking about? I mean, one thing that is very important and that is one of the founding principles of the IPA is that the way that we're going to make change is, first of all, internationalism is the future. We're not going to build change without practicing internationalism. And so one of the founding principles that brings us together is that we need to transcend the internationalism of statements. It's not enough to write statements in solidarity. It's not enough for me to send, you know, to post a tweet saying that I support workers on strike here and there. We have to actually go out and mobilize in the streets together. So one of the main priorities of the IPA right now is to build in the different regions that the IPA is organized in, days of anti-imperialist action that are done throughout the entire region, right? So against whatever that region determines are the causes or the what most sort of represents imperialism in that region. Mm. Because what we also know is that imperialism hits every corner of the planet, even if it is in different ways. These are all issues that are connected to imperialism, right? And so in all of the continents around the world, we need to have days of action against imperialism, whether they have to do with the environment or with military bases or with confronting patriarchy and racism, but organizations need to come together and determine what are gonna be those days of action. And the people who are involved in the United States need to make that decision too. What are we gonna be, how are we gonna be pointing the finger and confronting imperialism right here? And for the United States, this is an example of that. This is an important anti-imperialist action. It's three days of anti-imperialist action that's gonna culminate in the mobilization that we're gonna do. And so what we have to do is build that unity through action. Mm -hmm. Okay, IPA is in Latin America. Obviously, it's here in the United States. Where else is IPA? The IPA is organized in Latin America, the United North America, Asia, mostly in South Asia, in Sub-Saharan Africa, in the Arab region, which is North Africa, and we don't call it the Middle East because that's an imperialist term to denominate a place in the world and also in Europe. And so in all of those different regions, the IPA is organized, has several organizations that are building the process in each of those regions and organizing their own efforts to confront imperialism, doing missions like, for example, the, the Arab region organized a mission to see the conditions in Sudan and build solidarity against the coup that happened in Sudan and for democracy in that country. In Sub-Saharan Africa, they've been involved actively in supporting the strike, dairy workers, and also have been involved in supporting struggles for democracy in the region. And so in every one of the regions, the IPA has different campaigns that it is building to face imperialism in those places. Okay, somebody's somewhere in the world, they want to join IPA, they want to learn about it first. How do they how do they do that? I mean, I think that the first thing is you can go to the website, look up the International People's Assembly and try to find out what organizations in your region are already part of the IPA 
and also if you're already part of an organization is to try to introduce your organization to others in, the, in your region that are part of the IPA to get involved in the IPA chapter in your country, I think so, is the so best way. So if an way. organization is interested, they want to reach out, they Definitely. contact you on the website, yes. you, people from the IPA will reach back to them. Yes, and they'll get invited to events. We do a bunch of different kinds of events. That's why it's very hard for me to say like, oh, what's the one campaign? No, there's a lot of different campaigns. There's a lot of different events. Each region does a variety of different things from political education activities to cultural activities to protests. So it's a host of different things, and I think that, yeah, people should, should get involved. Okay. That's Stephanie Weatherby, International People's Assembly. Stephanie, thank you very much. Thank you, Brian. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.